Um, As I said, we are doing a survey of the Bible. Um, We are moving through that, and uh, as we have moved through that, we are talking about the context in which everything is written, then we talk about the content, and then convictions that come out of that, and we're going to continue that today. Um, We have already covered the Pentateuch, the first five books that Moses wrote, um, which is really the foundation of the theocracy. It kind of sets up the whole plan. God has a people he's chosen. He's going to use those people to uh, provide a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we know, as the story develops, that that blessing that blesses all the nations is the blessing of Jesus. Um, It's God's plan for his people and how his people should live in the middle of this plan that is um, reestablishing God's rule in our lives and in the world. Um, And so this all starts in the Pentateuch. Uh, We have talked about the book of Genesis, and we talked about it's the beginning of all things, And the real message of Genesis is not about creation and evolution and those kind of things. The real message is that God is great and God is good. He's got a great plan. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He can do whatever he wants because he created the world. Um, He judged the world and started all over again. He chose a particular people out of his grace to be the channel through whom he would bless the world. He's great and he gets to do what he wants. But what he wants to do is a good thing because he wants to bless us. We saw that in the book of Genesis. We saw in the book of Exodus that God is a God of redemption. He saves us and he is with us. He saved the nation of Israel out of their bondage in a symbolic slavery to Egyptians. This is the same God who who redeems us and saves us out of our bondage to sin. And he is with us. This message continues. These messages are good messages uh, for us to, to really uh, learn and engage with. We, we saw that Leviticus is really how we live in the presence of God. It's a, it really is a manual for sanctification, how you use everything in your daily life to remind you that you're a people set apart, how you recognize sin, that you are a redeemed people, but sin separates you from God, and taking that very seriously. We saw that in the book of Leviticus. We also saw in the book of Numbers that God is working in our lives, and they are in the wilderness mostly. That's where most of the book of Numbers takes place. In a wilderness, it's not a place they want to be. They're on a journey from, from one place to another place, just like us. And in this wilderness, there's, there's often struggles, there's battles like they face. There's opposition from without. There's rebellion from within. Um, all of that is, is common to us. And, and God, his work in the wilderness can't be stopped, even though there is rebellion, even from us. There's opposition from without. God's work cannot be stopped. And this is a paradigm of the Christian life where we have these wilderness times that are deep. But in general, we're kind of in a wilderness now as we're waiting for our our, um, introduction into the promised presence of God. And in that wilderness, there's opposition, but God is still working. And in the book of Numbers, even though the people of God rebel, even though the enemies of God um, attack, God's work continues. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, it really is a book of four sermons. Um, Moses is preaching these four sermons after they've wandered in the wilderness. They're camped on the plains of Moab. We're going to hear a little bit more about that. Um, and Moses preaches these four sermons, and he puts them in a covenant format. Um, he puts them in a treaty format, and he calls them to covenant faithfulness. Moses is talking to this new generation. Their parents have died in the wilderness. They're camped on the plains of Moab. They're about ready to enter the land under Joshua that we're going to talk about today. And Moses preaches these four sermons calling 
for covenant faithfulness. You're the people of God. Be faithful to him. That's what we've seen so far. We are now moving into the historical books. The historical books are, is the outworking of God's theocracy. Genesis sets up the foundation of it, and now in these historical books, as we go through Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, we're going to see the outworking of God's work with people, God, God's beginning work with his people, and Joshua is the very beginning of that. And what we are going to see in Joshua is this very simple message. God is faithful, so we should stay vigilant. God is faithful, we should stay vigilant. This is the outworking of God's program. It is kind of the first glimpse into how God is working. And, and I would tell you, that's a great New Year's message. <laughs> if you're wondering, if there's a good New Year's message, here it is. You begin the new year with this message firmly implanted in your mind and in your life. God is faithful. He's been faithful this past year. He will be faithful this new year. But we're still wandering around. There are still battles to fight like Joshua fights. God is faithful, but we need to still stay vigilant as his people. Now, we're going to see the structure of Joshua a number of times, but I know I've got the kids in the room. So I'm going to do something a little bit different than I would normally do. We did this when we reviewed the Pentateuch, but I've got some hand motions for you, okay? So I need everybody to stand up. If you would stand up. Kids, I need you to help your parents with these hand motions, okay? We're going to understand what happens in the book of Joshua, okay? Now, Joshua is not really the prophet preacher that Moses is. Joshua is a general. He's going to lead a battle through the land. So the first thing I need everybody to do is I just need you to salute like a general, and I need you to say Joshua, okay? So on three, one, two, three, Joshua, okay? Now, we're going to bring our hand down. We're going to turn this way, and we're going to look at this map, and what we're going to do is we're going to cross the Jordan River because Joshua is going to lead them across the Jordan, okay? So it's going to be one, two, three, Joshua, Jordan, okay? And then what we're going to do is just we're going to, the most famous battle that he fights is the, is the battle at Jericho, and the walls are going to fall down, okay? So we're just going to go Jericho. So we got three. They're real easy. This is kind of the beginning introduction of the book, the most famous things we know about. On three, let's do it. Joshua, Jordan, Jericho. Now, you need to be turned this way, okay? Everybody's got to be turning this way. Some of you looked at me and turned that way. I just don't know. This is rebellious generation right here, Okay. Turn this way, okay? Okay, so let's start this way. We're going to do this again one more time. Joshua, Jordan, Jericho. Now, here's, we're going to now do the two main sections of the book, okay? The first part of the book, they're going to divide and conquer, and the campaign is going to be the south and the north. The reason you need to turn this way is because that's south, that's north. It happens to work on the, on the uh, page too, okay? So let's just do that part. Okay, we're turned this way. Then we're going to do divide, conquer, south, north. Okay, let's put all that together. Turn over here. Okay, ready? This is Joshua. This is the whole, I'm putting the whole book together for you. Okay, one, two, three. Joshua, Jordan, Jericho, divide, conquer, south, north. Now we've just covered the first 12 chapters. Okay, that's what we did. The first 12 chapters, we're done. But we're still looking this way, and we've got another half of the book. In the second half of the book, 
they're going to divide the book again. They're going to divide up the land, but this time they're not conquering it. This time they're going to settle in the, in the land, and they're going to divide it up into the 12 tribes. So what we're going to do is we're going to divide, settle 12 tribes. And then we've got the whole book of Joshua together, okay? Really introducing you, kind of those things you know, Joshua, who's the, Jor- who's the general, he crosses the Jordan River. They're over there in Moab where Moses has been preaching, but he, he dies. They cross the Jordan River, Jericho falls. There's a few other things we'll talk about. But mostly what they do in those first 12 chapters is they divide the land, they conquer it with a campaign in the south, a campaign in the north. You can see it on the map up there. And then the rest of the book, a long section, is just which tribe gets which one. They divide, they settle, and chop it up into 12 tribes. Let's put it all together, okay? The whole book of Joshua, here you go. Kids, thanks for being here. One, two, three. Joshua, Jordan, Jericho, divide, conquer, south, north, divide, settle, 12 tribes. All right, very good. You know the book of Joshua. You've got it all all down pat. All of that whole message shows us that God is faithful in the battle as they're conquering in the south and in the north. God is faithful, but in the middle of that, they have to stay vigilant. When they're not vigilant, there's opposition and there's failure. Now, the story of the book is really interesting. Um, The story of the book is fascinating, but it can be troubling. One commentator um, Helena Delaire, her name is French, I totally butchered it, um, but she says the book of Joshua is both thrilling and disturbing. It is thrilling because of the battles and the people and the intrigue, um, the betrayals, but it's also disturbing because it is war. This is truly a book of war. We're going to have to talk about that and deal with it. Summarizing the book and thinking through the summary of the whole book, Danny Hayes says this, the action storyline of the book of Joshua is about conquering, distributing, and taking possession of the promised land. The theological storyline is the same as that presented in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Obedience and trust in God result in deliverance, victory, and blessing, while disobedience results in tragic defeat, judgment, and the onset of curses, the opposite of blessings. God's going to be faithful, but we have to be vigilant because God will accomplish his plan, but our participation and enjoyment of being a part of that plan is result is dependent on our obedience and trust in him. God will accomplish his plan, but our participation in that plan is dependent on our obedience and our trust in him. Danny goes on to say this. Also, the heart of this book is the proclamation that God is faithful to his people. He gives Israel the land of Canaan just as he promised their forefather, Abraham. He does it. You're going to see that again and again, but I want to show you, kind of as you move through the book, they divide, they conquer, they divide, and they're settling the land. The land is distributed. Near the end of the book, you find what I think is the theme statement in the book. In Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 45, Way near the end of the book, there's 24 chapters, you get to chapter 21, you read this summary. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their forefathers, and they possessed and lived in it, and the Lord gave them rest on every side. This idea of rest is going to be picked up in the New Testament uh, by the author of the book of Hebrews in a fascinating way. 
Um, <laughs> he, the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their forefathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all the enemies into their land. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Do you see how it's emphasizing God did this? God promised, and he fulfilled it. But I want you to notice as well, there are seven alls in this passage. The Lord gave all the land of Israel, which we had sworn to their forefathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of all their enemies stood before them. Uh, uh, the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had given to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. God is faithful to do everything he said he will do. Now, for them, it was give them the land. For us, um, the, the person who becomes the new Joshua, Joshua's name means Yahweh saves, and Jesus is a form of that name, Yahweh saves. Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises, that all these promises that God had made. For them, it's very physical. For us, it's very spiritual. God will fulfill all of the promises. Now, I've got a few resources to make this a little helpful out on the Connection Center. I've got the chart that I do for every one of these books. There's an introduction to the historical books that I think you would find really helpful. It was really helpful to me. Um, I've been studying the Bible for 40 years now. (laughs) I read this one short section, and it really opened my eyes and set some pieces of the puzzle together for me in a really good way. Making a distinction between Joshua through 2 Kings and then Chronicles through Nehemiah, because there's kind of two ways the history is presented. That orientation to these historical books was really helpful. I encourage you to read it. And then there are two articles, one that's um, out of the NIV Study Bible that talks about um, holy war and genocide and and whether this was an evil thing. There's another one by Danny Hayes as well about this whole issue of war. Why are they conquering these people? Why are they going in and and killing them all. Um, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, they do not kill everyone in the land. They're not told to kill everyone in the land. They are told to drive them out, okay? So the, 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 this is not genocide. They're supposed to go in and drive them out. Now, there are a couple of places, very strategic places, like Jericho and Ai and Shechem, a few cities that were strongholds in the land where the war takes place, and they have to go in, and they have to kill the people. They have to engage in war because these are strongholds in the land. In fact, in all likelihood, Jericho is not a city. It's a military fortress. Now, you're going to read a lot of stuff about Jericho and archaeology. Um, Here's the deal with Jericho. There are at least 13 levels of the archaeological dig in Jericho. Um, And and everybody goes, well, at this point, it was inhabited by all these people. When you get down to the time when these battles are taking place, the archaeology suggests that this is just a military stronghold. So to go into Jericho um, and destroy them all, by the way, that would be why Rahab the harlot is there. She's got a good business with all these military guys. Sorry. Um, (laughs) um, but, But it's probably they are conquering military strongholds. But they are also conquering people that God has graciously been patient with before he conquers them. Way back in the book of Genesis, 
God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but not right now. I'm not ready to push all these people out of the land because they're not as wicked as they are going to be. Let me read you the passage from Genesis chapter 15. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Back in Egypt is what he's talking about. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, the Egyptians, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. This all gets fulfilled. As for you, you shall go to your your fathers in peace. You're going to die. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here to this land where Abraham is when these promises are made in the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites um, had not gotten to the point, and Amorites is, is, Canaanites is kind of a broad term. Amorites can be a term as well that means all of these people in the land, they were not wicked enough for God to say it's time to judge them. But now, this is 600 years later, 600 years from this promise, the Amorites had gotten so wicked. What's going on in the land? Just to give you three pictures, okay? There is a lot of child sacrifice to the gods. They are sacrificing their children to the gods. In the temples where they worship, um, cult prostitution is very common. That's how they go and connect with the gods. Um, A a lot of uh, drunkenness, prostitution, child sacrifice, and in fact, in many of these settings, um, the priest would perform their duties unclothed. This, just, um, the wickedness was unbelievable. Um, And God was patient until the wickedness got to the point where he said, I've, I've had it. And now Joshua's going to go in. They're going to drive the people out of the land, but their wickedness is so bad that if they're resisting, they're going to be put to death. Um, they're actually put in, under the ban. Um, it's translated a lot of different ways in the translations. Under the ban, literally the Hebrew word is harem. Um, a harem is something that's dedicated to a certain person, like a king's harem would be the women in the king's court that are dedicated to him. They're off limits to everybody else. This word harem, under the ban, the people are, are dedicated to God. They're off limits to you. Their stuff is off limits to you. That's the problem with Achan. Achan takes some of their stuff that is harem, under the ban, off limits. The people are off limits. You're not supposed to welcome them in, in their immorality and their wickedness, They are devoted to destruction by God, and God is going to destroy them, but he's going to use his people to do that. Um, This is, read the two articles, it's it's a huge thing. I'm going to move on to something a little more encouraging, okay? (laughs) In the whole book, one of the things we're going to see again and again is this idea of the presence of the Lord. God is with them. It is God who's with them. It's not the, 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 the wonderful strategy of dividing the land through the middle and then going to the south and the north. It's not that strategy. It is how it happens, but it's the presence of the Lord. God says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Joshua. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. 
Have you ever heard those words before? <laughs> it sounds like the Great Commission. As, as Joshua is going into what he's commissioned to do, to take the land, to bring in the rule of God, God says, I will be with you. As we are commissioned to take the, the nations, to take the world with the message of the gospel, God says, I will be with you. This is paradigmatic for all of our lives. Um, God also says this, Joshua said, by this you will know that the living God is among you, that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Do you see who's going to do it? He doesn't say that we will drive them out. God will drive them out. And I want you to notice, this is not the only time this happens. This happens in uh, Deuteronomy as well. It happens a number of times. There are seven nations listed here, Canaanite, Hittite, Hivite, Perizzite, Girgashite, Amorite, Jebusite. Those seven nations, interestingly, correspond to when Jesus feeds the 4,000 in his ministry. Jesus is across the Jordan River. He's in Gentile territory And when they take up the baskets full of extra, there are seven baskets left over. When he's in Gentile territory, there are seven baskets left over. That's when he feeds 4,000. When he feeds 5,000, he's in Jewish territory, and there are 12 baskets left over. Twelve tribes. God has enough for all the tribes of Israel. God has enough provision for all the Gentile nations as well. It's no mistake that there's seven baskets left over there. Um, God's presence is with them. But they are still supposed to be strong and courageous. At the very beginning of the book, God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their forefathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Twice he says, be strong, be courageous. He's going to continue. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it, for then you will make your your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Be strong and courageous, which means... You're doing what God wants you to do. It's all pulled together, actually, in verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God is with you, so be strong and courageous. Joshua, God is faithful, be vigilant. God is going to be with you, he's going to give you the victory, but be vigilant. Now, in this transition, there's a fascinating thing. I'm going to go through these fast. They're, they're just a list. Um, Joshua is the new Moses. Some things happen with Joshua that are exactly what happens with Moses. And this is a predictor. Matthew's going to pick this up. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel writer, is going to pick this up. And he goes out of his way to show that Jesus is the new Moses. Um, it's kind of like Moses kind of gave everything. Here's how it's going to work. Joshua now takes over. In the New Testament, Jesus is the new Moses. It's, I'd have to do the whole book of Matthew, and I'll do that eventually, um, but I'd have to do the whole book of Matthew to show you that. But, but God says to both Joshua and Moses, I will be with you. Both of them send spies. 
Moses sends the spies to spy out the land, the 12 of them, only two come back with a good report. Joshua sends spies into Jericho. They both lead through the water. Um, they come out of Egypt and they go cross through the Red Sea with Mo- and the waters come back so they go through on dry land. The same thing happens when they cross the Jordan River. Um, they go through on dry land. Both of them at very important times really renew the covenant by the circumcision of all the males. And both of them are told at different times, you're walking on holy ground. Joshua is kind of this new Moses. In fact, in chapter 4, on that day the Lord God exalted Moses in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Moses is this, this new, new heroic person who's now leading them, not so much teaching them. That's what Moses does. He, he teaches them uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He, he, he's presenting all of that. Moses is now this active general who's going to lead them. So now let's get into this context, okay? Who's writing? When's he writing? Where are they? And why is he writing this? We're going to start with who composed the book of Joshua. Joshua seems to have been the primary author of the written accounts of the conquest and allotment of the land. He seems to be because every now and then he kind of breaks into we did this, okay? The rabbis say Joshua is the writer, okay? There's a lot of ancient tradition that says Joshua is the writer. I think Joshua is the writer of most of it, although I have in little parenthesis down there, it seems clear that some later editorial work was done to give the book its final shape. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Scripture's inspired in error and in inerrant, has no errors in it. Even the editorial work that seems to have taken place, like Joshua's death being described, there are a few events, some things Caleb did, the migration of the tribe of Dan to the north. Um, those things come later after Joshua's time. And so somebody later has kind of put those in because it helps fill out some things in the book. All of that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let me back up. Joshua wrote this thing, okay? <laughs> Joshua's writing it all down. It may have a little bit of shaping that comes a little bit later. When did all this happen? The events covered in the book of Joshua take place over a roughly 25-year period Right after the death of Moses, Moses has just preached the book of Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab, right near the Jordan River. They're getting ready to go in, concluding with the death of Joshua at the age of 110. So from the death, the book is the death of Joshua, uh, death of Moses at the beginning, and the death of Joshua at the end. That's how this book moves. Joshua dies when he's 100 years old, probably born in 1485, died in 1375. Uh, We can put all those dates together pretty easily. Uh, So it's 25 years, about seven years for the battle, 19 years for the um, distribution of the land, because the battle just controls the strategic strongholds. That's what the seven years of the battle is. The 19 years of them distributing the land is, okay, we, we took out the major stronghold for you, tribe of Naphtali, That's your part of the land. Now you go control it, okay? That's what's going on in the book. When did all this happen? 25 years from the death of Moses to the death of Joshua. When was it written? It was written as a challenge to the post-conquest generation of the covenant community before the establishment of the monarchy. Here's the deal. (laughs) This book was written to the generations 
that followed the conquest. The, the people who are living in the land after they have entered it and they've kind of controlled it, not completely, and that's a problem. That's where their obedience is not full. But they have controlled the land. Um, those people, this book is written to say, guys, God will be faithful to you while you're in the land here, but you have to be vigilant. And it's a message to those people that lived before um, Saul, David, and Solomon. We're going to look next week at the book of Judges in one week instead of 20 weeks like we did before. Um, But the people who lived through the book of Judges, this book was written for them. Um, Why was Joshua composed? Joshua was written to remind God's people that the Lord is the source of their victory and challenge them to be faithful and obedient like Joshua and a few others in the book. Um, The book is written to say, God is the source of your victory. It's not your numbers, because they don't win with great numbers. They do some pretty crazy things to win these battles, because God is the one who's winning the battles for them. But they still need to be faithful to do exactly what God tells them and be obedient. Um, Joshua is, is really the hero throughout the book, And his outstanding qualities, I would say, are obedient faith, bold courage, and dedication to God and his word. He's obedient, faithfully obedient. I'm going to do exactly what God tells me. He's boldly courageous to walk into areas that seem like they're impossible. And he is dedicated to God and his word. When there's a problem, he gets the people dedicated back. That's what happens after they have a failure He gathers them all together and says, guys, remember what the word of God told us to do. We've got to be recommitted to that. Um, I love Dale Ralph Davis as just a commentator, but he says this. Remember, the plan of God is not about powerful personalities, but about purposeful promises. The, the, The plan of God is not because Joshua was so great, okay? God's going to use people, but the plan of God is his purposes being fulfilled, where were these people <laughs> who, are, who are reading the book? Joshua was, was, leading, was, was leading a new generation of Israelites who were camped on the plans of Moab after their parents died following 40 years in the wilderness. The events take place immediately after the messages of Deuteronomy and the death of Moses. This is the new generation. All of their parents, okay, all of their parents have died 40 years in the wilderness, Moses or Joshua is recording the events that took place for this new generation and he's leaving the record for the new generation to show God is faithful so be vigilant be obedient to his word be courageous trust in him with everything again there's two parts to the book we've already seen there's two parts to the book the first half of the book is the battles they divide and then they conquer um, they, they go right through the middle of the land, then they go to the south, and then they go to the north, and they kind of control the strategic strongholds. The second half of the book, beginning in chapter 13, is the distribution of the land to the 12 tribes. And each one of those tribes is told to go to your section and control the land. There are a couple of tribes that say, can we live on the other side of the Jordan? And an agreement is made with them, and a treaty made with them at the very end of the book to say, yes, you can live on the other side of the Jordan, but if there's ever a battle and we need you, you have to cross the Jordan and help us. This becomes a big issue in the book of Judges, okay? 
So the content, how, how is this book, um, how is the book arranged and wh- what is really the message of it? Okay, I've already gone through this a bunch of times. You know, the first 12 chapters is controlling strategic military strongholds. And that is where a lot of the kill everybody there takes place. The second part of the book is each tribe is supposed to go and drive out the people. Now, if anybody wants to become part of the covenant community, they're supposed to allow that, but not allow them to come in with their gods. They have to come in 100% loyal to Yahweh. Now, here's the deal. (laughs) They do a pretty good job controlling the strategic military strongholds. They do a horrible job in complete control of the nation. They do not drive the people out. So all of those Hittites and, and Amorites with their gods, Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech, all of that idolatry is going to plague them for the next thousand years because they don't effectively take control of the book or, or of the people. So the book has, has a narrative to it, but there's a theology to it as well. God's going to do his part. Will you do your part? Again, Helena de Lair says, The book does not provide a complete and exhaustive record of all the major events that occurred under Joshua's leadership. Rather, it provides a description of the main events that undergird a theological emphasis. Okay, so it's, it's not a full accounting. It's setting up a message. And here's what she says the message is. I think she's right on tra- track. The initial fulfillment of God's promise of the land to the children of Israel. It's this first thing. God said he's going to do this. He's going to do this. It establishes the nation, na- nation as a national identity. They are people who have a land. They are a nation now. And it shows God's active participation in the conquest of the land. That's what's going on in this book. Now, you can outline the book a couple of different ways. I, I think the easiest way is the first half is conquering the land. The second half is distributing the land. But really, if you look at it, The first four chapters is kind of the preparation to enter the land, calling them to be faithful to God. It's where God's saying, be strong, be courageous. Then they control the land, they distribute the land, and then they have a plan at the end for retaining the land, and that is where there's another whole ceremony to renew the covenant. After they've done it, they say, now that we're in here, we're still going to be faithful to God. That covenant emphasis can be seen a little bit more clearly if you kind of take um, and you break it down a little bit more because what you see is they're successful, but when they fail, every time they fail, they come back and renew their commitment to the covenant. God is going to be faithful to do his part, but when they're not faithful, it's because they're not faithful to the covenant, so they don't come back and say, oh my gosh, we lost the battle at Ai. We should have won. We just wiped out Jericho. We lost this battle at Ai. We have to have a better strategy. That's not what they do. When they lose the battle at I, they say, we have to come back and commit ourselves to the Lord again, and then they win the battle. When they finish everything, they commit themselves to the Lord again. This whole idea of we're going to keep committing ourselves to the covenant. In the chart I've got that I've put together, um, I basically show that there's a preparation As they enter the land, there's all the battles, there's the victory as they divide the land up, and then these challenges, let's keep the land by being faithful to God. I'm going to point out one contrast. You can't read all this, I don't care. Here's what you need to know. (laughs) There's a major contrast in this book that is significant right at the beginning of the book between Rahab and Achan. And there's 
repeated things in there, but here's what I want you to see. Rahab is a Canaanite who fears the Lord, and she is preserved part of the covenant community, and she is even a part of the genealogy of Jesus. But she's a Canaanite. She's not just a Canaanite. She's a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. But she fears the Lord, and she is incorporated into the people of God and a part of his plan. Her dedication, her faithfulness, her obedience allows her to participate in the plan of God. Achan, on the other hand, is an Israelite who does not fear the Lord. He should be the kind of guy who's fearing the Lord, but he doesn't, and he dies with his family and his stuff. This is set up at the very beginning to say, hey folks, just because you're a part of the nation of Israel, that's not what matters. What matters is your heart, do you fear the Lord? This is an important part of this. Um, Bruce Wilkinson, in his summary of the books of the Bible, he says this, Victory comes through faith in God and obedience to his word rather than military might or numerical superiority. You can read this book as a battle book and it's exciting and it would make a great video game and you're killing people all over. You could read it that way. But this book is not about military might and numerical superiority because they do stupid things like marching around a military stronghold of Jericho, marching around it for seven days and then blowing trumpets. Really? Try that. But it is faithfulness to obey God and they win the battle. So what's the message of this book? Um, I want to highlight a few things. The author, likely Joshua, recorded these historical events. These are real events of Israel's conquest and division. That's the two parts of the book. The first part, their conquest. The second part, the division of the land of Canaan. Under their courageous and obedient exemplary leader Joshua, he records all of this in order to demonstrate the faithfulness of Yahweh to his covenant promise and to motivate the nation to be faithful and obedient to the law of Moses so they can enjoy rest in the land. So what would I say our message is today? God is faithful to do everything he said he would do. He said he would save us and he set up this whole national development of the land of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And out of that came not just somebody who would save us, but a king, the son of God, who would come to save us. God has been faithful to do what he said he would do. And he's commissioned us to do something. What he's commissioned us to do is make disciples of all the nations. And he promised us in that, I'll be with you always. The historical record of Joshua is a great example for us. God will do his part. Will we do our part? And if we do our part, he's with us. He will be faithful. He won't forsake us. God is faithful. So stay vigilant. Stay committed to his plan, his promises, his person. His presence is there with you. You can do anything he asks you to do. Joshua demonstrates that the Lord fulfilled his promise to give his people the land and that his powerful presence was all that Israel needed to be successful against opposition. 
that's true for you as well. The opposition of Satan, the opposition of the world, and the opposition of your weak flesh. God will be with you and help you overcome all of that. Be vigilant. The book also challenges Israel to remain faithful to the Lord by reminding them that disobedience brings divine discipline and threatens to undermine their position as the Lord's covenant community. When Achan is, dis- is disobedient and he takes some of the stuff from Jericho, they fail. When your obedience is not complete, you won't enjoy all that God has for you. God will do his part. God will accomplish his purposes. Our participation in those wonderful, gracious purposes, our participation and enjoyment of them is based on our obedience. So what do we do with all of this? Gosh, if you don't have something to take away today, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Not my fault today. Uh, I, I would summarize it this way. Here's some things to believe. The Lord is faithful to do all that he has promised. Our participation in the promises of God is related to obedience, and our enjoyment of the promises of God is related to obedience. When we obey, we get to participate. When we obey, we get to enjoy. When we don't obey, God puts you on the shelf. When you don't obey, he's going to discipline you, and that's usually harsh. Um, God accepts genuine worship from and blesses those who trust him, even if they are a harlot Rahab who's a Canaanite. God will accept the worship of those who fully trust him. And incomplete obedience is very costly. Because in this whole book, what we're going to see is that they do not fully drive out the people from the land. And for the next 1,000 years, that's going to plague them. Idolatry is going to be there. So how should we behave? I'm just going to quote the words of the book. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Be strong. Be courageous. As you face whatever God puts in front of you in 2023, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. God's with you. He'll go with you wherever you go. And at the end of the book, the very last chapter, Here's what I think we should take away from today's message. For me and my household this year, my household's sitting right over there. For me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will be courageous. We will be vigilant. We know God will be faithful. For me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is the first perspective of God's faithfulness to the covenant. This is the first historical presentation that God said in the Pentateuch, here's how it works. This is the first presentation. See it working? God is faithful to his covenant, but it also shows human inconsistent faithfulness and the trouble that that brings. So a few next steps. Consistently depend on the faithfulness of God in every circumstance. Consistently depend and and count. God will be faithful. And like Joshua, courageously obey God fully in every situation. And when things go wrong, don't back up and say, okay, i got to come up with a better strategy. When things go wrong, back up and say, I'm going to rededicate myself to the Lord consistently participate in God's plan 
and look forward to his rest. God wanted them to rest in the land. He wanted them to have this sense of, oh, okay, here's home. But they didn't fully obey. So it was never, here's home. The ultimate rest for us is the presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity. So participate in his plan as we anticipate rest in that new community. Until then, January 1st, 2023, it's for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. How about you?